0: From the Defense Acquisition University, this is The Learning Circle.
1: This is The Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Dr. Carl Kopp. Dr. Kopp is a professor at Bloomsburg University and an expert on interactive learning, games, and gamification. He may be best known these days for his work in the area of games. He's one of the leading lights on the subject, and he's the author of the books Gamification of Learning and Instruction, with the subtitle Game-Based Methods and Strategies for Training and Education, and its companion book, The Gamification of Learning and Instruction Field Book. We're happy to have him with us on the Learning Circle today. Dr. Kopp, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you very, very much. So, lots of discussion of the role of games in learning today. It's a very hot topic. But some of us still want to know why. Why and how does it work What are the theories behind the practice? And that's what I'd like to discuss with you today. So first of all, let
0: me ask you this. Do games actually teach? Are they effective for learning? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I get asked that a lot. And the the short answer is yes. A well-designed game can be very effective for teaching. What a game does almost more than any other medium is allow for high levels of interactivity. So when you design a game effectively... It engages the learner. It causes them to think through the content. It causes them to realize, hopefully, some things that they didn't realize before because of the constructs or the system of the game. Now, of course, there are games that are poorly designed, so they don't teach. But there's poorly designed classrooms and poorly designed lectures. So the answer is, yes, games can teach, and they can teach very effectively.
1: Right. So assuming a thoughtfully designed game, it can be very, very effective. Yes. One of the theories, as we get into why they work, one of the theories that you discuss is scaffolding.
0: Can you tell us what that is and how it relates to games? Uh Uh-huh. So scaffolding is the concept that we help learners achieve the terminal learning objective by leveling them up step by step by step. So scaffolding is where we provide just enough help so the learner can get the information and then understand the information, and then keep moving up toward our terminal objective. So games can scaffold really well because they often have levels built right in. Games also have things like help and lifelines, assistance. So all those elements can help the learner get to the terminal learning objective, which is really what we want from learning games. One of the things a lot of people lose sight of is that we're designing a learning game because we want a learning outcome. And oftentimes we want a performance outcome to go along with that learning outcome, and the game should lead to that outcome. And scaffolding is a really good way to take a novice person and move them up to becoming more competent through help. And then once they get to a certain level, you take the scaffolding away, and they're kind of on their own, and that allows them to perform successfully on their own. And the game, what that does really nicely is allow you to perform in an environment where it's safe to fail. So when you play a game, if you play a digital game, for example, you often have three lives. So you know right away, oh, you know what? I can be a little risk-taking because I've got two more lives left. And scaffolding, you know, you don't quite know, can I make that? Can I make that learning leap? And you try it in a game because you know you get to try over. So uh, scaffolding is a really helpful tool that can be designed into games and really lead to very positive learning outcomes. So would it be
1: fair to say that games let a user practice the content until they're
0: good enough to progress to the next level? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. It allows the learner to practice. And also, if it's well designed, it lets them replay that content in different ways. So uh, this time I'm going to you know, try this strategy. Okay, next time I think I'll try a different strategy. And you can see how both of those strategies will work. And if the game's designed properly, it will allow for both of those strategies and reinforce the fact that, yeah, I got it. I used two different strategies. I got to the same point as mm. I played through it. And now I'm comfortable with the content. I've practiced it. And now I can move on.
1: That's like me with Angry Birds these days where, um, you know, I try different strategies, but the three lives thing, I, lately I just, you know, start the thing over <laughs> when, I, when I know it's not working out. Yeah. But that's very helpful. Another theory that you point to
0: is self-determination. Can you explain for our listeners what that means? Sure. So the idea behind self-determination theory is the fact that we're intrinsically motivated around three elements. So one is autonomy, which means we feel that we're motivated to do something when we can make our own decisions. The second in self-determination theory is competence. We feel motivated when we feel we can get to a level of competence. And that ties into scaffolding, right? So Uh, Rather than trying to go for, you know, a flight simulator right away, the first thing you learn to do is what are the instruments, right? in kind of that environment. And then finally is relatedness. And relatedness is basically social. So we're social creatures. And games are awesome social tools so you are at a party or you're with your friends and you pull out a game everybody sits down the mood of the room changes people are laughing people are having a good time and so um, the socialness of games is pretty important so when you have competence autonomy and social elements people are intrinsically or internally motivated to do things so if you think of the design of games Games really allow you to make decisions. You know, should I go this way or that way? Or should I pull this resource card or that resource card? Should I call his bluff or not call the bluff? And then games allow you then to build competence. Hey, I got over the first level. Or I figured out this is the way to play this particular card. And then because you're working with people, you have all of those. So games are very inherently motivational on a lot of different levels. And that motivation drives people to voluntarily go through a game. And so that can be a really important learning aspect. Would you say
1: that social dimension
0: is, we could call that a social learning layer or aspect to this? I think so. I think one of the things that sometimes when we put a game online that we lose sight of is the social aspect of games. A big compelling reason why people play games is because of the social element, that social layer that you talked about. Now, there are ways online to make sure that social layer exists. So um, you can have uh, non-real-time leaderboards. So I can see that you're doing better than I am, and I'm going to get on there and do that. Um, the game You Don't Know Jack does something really clever. Um, so if you play that on Facebook, when you play your round, it records it. And if I go on there and say, I'm going to play against Anthony because I want to play, it actually replays my round against your round. So even though we're not playing in real time... We are playing against each other because our recorded instances are unfolding at the same time. My recorded instance and your live instance are unfolding at the same time. So there are ways to add social elements into games, but but that layer of social interaction is good. In fact, the research shows that games are better for learning when they're played in groups than when they're played uh, individually. Interesting. Very interesting.
1: Now, you touched on these words in your last responses, but motivation plays a role, and you, you've touched on intrinsic learning, but we hear these two terms, extrinsic and intrinsic, and how they relate to motivation.
0: Can you expand on that a little bit? Right. So, so let's pull those apart a little bit. So intrinsic motivation is motivation that you have internally. So if you're motivated to accomplish a goal, if you're motivated to be better than you were last week, that's internal motivation. External motivation are things outside of you that cause you to do something. So a very simple one is a paycheck, right? I I do this just so I get the paycheck. Hopefully you're doing something because you're intrinsically motivated. You know, you like learning or you like your job, but part of it's extrinsic. And so gamification, uh, a lot of mistakes people make with it is they focus only on the extrinsic motivation. So they go, oh, you do this, you get a point or you get a badge or you get a leaderboard. But those aren't internally motivating things. Those are externally motivating. And we know from the research that if you only have external motivations over time, your enthusiasm for that activity will drop unless the external motivation keeps going up and up and up, which is almost impossible. Mm. So when you create gamification, you want to try to tie into both the internal and external motivation in research we tend to parse external and internal motivation but in reality it's very interrelated Mm. so for example if i go to school because i want to better myself i want to learn more i go to grad school well that's internal motivation but you know what i'm also going to get a raise at the end of this so that's external motivation so which is driving you you know internal or external well maybe it's a little bit of both I want to see if I can learn this content, I'm interested in this content, so that's internal, uh, intrinsic, but you know, a nice paycheck, I want to get a new car, that's external. So I think the mistake that sometimes we make about games is that we think they're all one or the other, but we really should think about how do we combine the best elements to get the best results from internal and external motivation.
1: That's very helpful. And I can see how those things are kind of intertwined. You know, you do something for the love of it, but there may be social expectations or whether it's the avoidance of embarrassment somehow right, or exactly. other other types of motivators. So that's very helpful, the way you've deconstructed that. Now, another theory that you've written about and spoken
0: about is spaced retrieval and practice. What is that and why is it effective? Right. So those are two separate things, but highly related. So the idea behind um, spaced practice is that you are given little pieces of content over time. And the, the interesting thing about this is that there's decades of research on the effectiveness of only learning a little bit at a time. However, most of our educational system has been in corporate and and, and K through 12, et cetera, has been cramming content. So for eight hours, I'm going to tell you all about, you know, instructional design or becoming a good salesperson or whatever. But that causes two problems. That's cramming information. One is learner fatigue. You just, you know, we've all been at a workshop at the end of the day. We're like, our head, you know, we're fried. You can't learn another thing. And, um, preceding and succeeding information interfere with that learning. So if we could just get a little piece of information on a daily basis for 5 or 10 minutes, there's some research that shows up to 8 years later, people recall that information. Mm. So it's really good for recalling information. It reinforces it. So that's space practice. Now combine that with something called space retrieval. So space retrieval basically says when you recall information, you're going to learn it more. You're going to be able to recall it more often by being quizzed on it. Than if you reread or if you re-listen to the information, so actually recalling content creates stronger neural pathways to that content. I was so, going to
1: ask if is there some brain science involved here with the way your mind, I guess, wires
0: itself to that information. Right. Yeah, I, ca- I call it, you know, learning science. But basically, it's the idea that um, we're creating stronger neural pathways to retrieve the information. There's some. Uh, researchers believe that we everything we've ever encountered is in our brain somewhere and we just can't get it out.
1: And that's better than just revisiting the material. It's that active
0: retrieval. It's that active retrieval. Right. If you go back and reread it, it's helpful but not as helpful as if you're quizzed on the content. So professors in college who gave you pop quizzes were actually helpful to you. Mm. So it's not just testing your knowledge but it's also reinforcing that knowledge. So you're actually learning through the testing process. And when you combine them together, there's been um, some research studies that show anywhere from uh, like 41% to 61% improvement in retention when you combine space retrieval and retrieval practice. And a lot of gamification platforms do exactly that. So now we have our mobile device and we, we get a message that says, hey, here's a quiz question. Go ahead and take the quiz question. That's using space practice and distributed practice. Now, the problem with that is, you know, who wants to do that every day, right? Every day, go to your phone. So gamification adding those elements of pulling you to the content, competing with somebody, or helping you better yourself, or showing your progress, makes that process of retrieval and space practice more palatable than simply, okay, here's a message, you have to answer it.
1: How much is it being done? Do you see it being incorporated into e-learning, let alone games, but just even e-learning? So we extend that, the effectiveness of the learning into A
0: user's life, right? But how much is that being done? Do you know? It's starting to grow, so it's being done a lot in um, the gamification space because they're using these small drips of, of knowledge. But also, companies are realizing. So there's a couple, uh, a number of vendors who who will send text messages. So there's another interesting research. They took a group of um, gentlemen in India who were glucose impaired. So they were predisposed to type 2 diabetes, divided them into two groups. One group, they gave the traditional diabetes instructions. The second group, they sent them a text message every day, twice a day. And they reduced the the incidences of type 2 diabetes by 36% just by sending these text messages. So companies are starting to get the message that this is a really good way to instruct. The problem is all of our traditional instructional design, our traditional instructional approaches have trouble figuring out where does this fit in Mm. and strategy wise. So if we, if we know this now, do we take every single course that every single learner should be taking and break it into chunks and deliver it? So every day for two and a half hours, I've got to do these, you know, so that doesn't work. So you have to be strategic about it. But I, I would say that it's definitely growing and it's, it's growing first or has grown first in the gamification space because the gamified vendors have picked up on the fact that, Hey, this works. And so if we can get people to do this, let's go ahead and encourage them to kind of do this activity. Um, it doesn't have to be gamified, as I gave in that example, mm-hmm. but it uh, is starting to become more and more. And I, and I think the other thing that really contributes to that is mobile learning. So 10 years ago, you know, you, you couldn't fly, you have your sales force, you can't fly them in for 15 minutes today, fly them in for 15 minutes on Friday, and say, okay, um, we're going to teach you for 15 minutes and go back to work because this is more effective. But you've got the phone in your hand or in your pocket. We're going to send you a message today. We're going to send you a message Friday. We're going to send you a message on Monday. And we have the tools now to leverage the technology to match what we know the pedagogy says.
1: It's very interesting. And similarly, in in marketing, we've seen for years these autoresponder emails, right? And there's a motivation there. People are uh, trying to get folks into their sales funnel, right? And uh, so they have these spaced emails and Mm They've even called some of these things autoresponder courses. You know, you sign up and you learn something over time. So, just very intriguing how technology has been fueling a lot of this. But sometimes the learning industry has to catch up, you know, and and figure out how to
0: harness that too. Right. It's interesting because the learning industry, in some ways, is oh shiny object. Let's all run to the shiny object. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, they also miss the big picture so not always quick to do that you know i always say we took the what we tend to do in the training industry is we take the old methodology and just plunk it into the new technology so for example you know e-learning a lot of it was just powerpoint slides i say we, we took the worst from classroom instruction and just put it online so we really need to think about well what works online. So adaptive learning works really well online, game-based learning works well online, distributed practice works well online. So let's focus on those elements rather than kind of just PowerPoints online with bullet points and a disembodied voice not really as effective. You know, you take a look at something like Second Life, for example, people go into Second Life, even today, and they sit in a virtual chair and they listen to a virtual lecture with virtual PowerPoint. You know, Second Life is about, or virtual worlds, are about field trips. Mm. Not classrooms. Yes. So it's just fitting the right pedagogy into the new technology so that we do it smartly and intelligently.
1: Very helpful, that explanation. I have a final question for you.
0: One of the theories you've spoken of is episodic memory. What is that? Right. So episodic memory. So a good way to think about it is if you ask someone where they were when the space shuttle blew up, They probably know exactly where they are when they do. Yeah. yeah. So where were you? I was getting ready to take my
1: PSATs, I think, Mm -hmm. and I walked into the uh, school like cafeteria, and there was a big buzz about
0: it. Right. Yeah. 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 I was walking across campus at dickinson college i was walking across campus at dickinson college and somebody came up to me and go did you hear the space shuttle blow up right so that's burned in your memory same thing with 9-11 you know yes. exactly where you were exactly what you were doing when you heard about it that's episodic memory it's a very strong emotional attachment to a memory now most of the time in training the other thing i complain i have about instructional design is we suck the humanity out of learning right so we've we've made it systemized we've bullet pointed it we've diced it and sliced it and we lost kind of the humanity so the affective domain or or the motions is what episodic memory is about so when you play a game and have fun you're going to associate fun with that learning situation and you're going to recall it easier why because you're creating more pathways Oh, now there's a fun pathway not just a content pathway and so when you leverage emotion for the learning and it doesn't always have to be Now, you have to be really careful with this, but it doesn't always have to be positive, right? You can have a certain level of frustration and then go, ah, I got it. I mean, so I ask a lot of people sometimes, I said, think about your best learning experience and think back to when it was. And then I say, now, were you frustrated before you got it? Like, what was your emotion before? And a lot of people say, yeah, I struggled and struggled and struggled, and then I got it. I'll never forget the moment I got that. And that's really what, episodic memory is about. Can we create experiences that are emotionally gratifying to the learner that they link it to it? So games are a good example. Now you have to be careful though. So when you have a game, you obviously have winners and you have people that don't win. We call them losers. The problem is sometimes you can get so emotionally invested in the game and the learning game that you shut down because you lost. So we have to be a little bit careful in how we design that, we have to help people get through that, we have to de-emphasize a little bit the winning, but we can create experiences, especially uh, collaborative game experiences, and the commercial games are like uh, Forbidden Island or Pandemic, that allow you to have this really powerful, sometimes emotional team experience, you know, going through collaborative experience through the game. So. That's really kind of what episodic memory is about. It's tying emotions to the learning experience so that we're able to recall that learning experience a little bit more effectively. That's
1: very powerful. That's a very helpful explanation. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, Dr. Kopp. Appreciate your valuable time today. Thanks for
0: having me. This has been great.
1: We're here at the Learning Solutions Conference, and I hope you have a great time with the rest of your stay.
0: Thank you. You too. Thank you again. Take care. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.